How do you feel when you are settled in on your couch, nice bowl of hot buttery popcorn just within reach, and you're streaming that movie on Netflix that you've been waiting for so long to watch, when all of a sudden the screen freezes, that little spinning circle, buffering circle, comes on. And it stays on, and on, and on, and on, and it won't go away. It's frustrating, right? You're working at your computer. The program glitches. The screen freezes. On a Mac, it's a little colorful beach ball-looking thing. So I think the developers thought that would make it a little easier if it was kind of happy-looking. And it won't go away. You know, it's frustrating when things don't work like we expect them to. So now I'm not a techie person at all. But I know one thing to do if my computer glitches or if my modem stops working. What do I do? What do I do? Reboot, right? We reboot. I throw the blanket off, spill the popcorn. As I get up from the couch, I go and unplug the modem from the wall, wait 30 seconds, plug it back in, and guess what? Everything is working again. I don't know why rebooting works. I don't know how rebooting works. I just know that it does. In some way, it clears out whatever's wrong so that everything is right again. Matthew, in the verses that we have before us this morning, is doing a spiritual reboot. And not only for the, for the audience of his day, but for us as well, because our lives don't always work the way they are supposed to work. And all of us know that. And in our lives, there are moments of frustration, maybe a lot of frustration. Things don't go as we expect them to go. People disappoint us. And so in many ways, there's this frustration. And that's when we need a spiritual reboot. We need the Lord to clear up whatever's wrong in our thinking about who he is and our expectations of him. We need to clear up our thinking in what it is that he expects of us and how it is that he calls us to live our lives. What it means to be people of faith, because that's what's most important in our lives, that we see Jesus for who he is and not just who we want him to be or expect him to be. So I'm praying that Matthew will do in our hearts this morning this spiritual reboot. So if you have your Bibles with you, I want to ask you to open them to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. And keep it open to Matthew chapter 1. I'm not going to read verses 2 through 16 this morning because they're a list of names. We'll just be referring to them as we go through the passage. And then you won't be nervous that I'm going to mispronounce some of those names or anything like that. So have your Bible open, keep it open, and we'll refer to certain verses through the course of our time together this morning. So let's bow and ask the Lord to, uh, to bless us as we come to his word this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do need you, as always, we need you in all of our lives, but particularly when we come to your word. We need your Holy Spirit to be at work and to take your word and to use it to to bring transformation in our lives, to, to reveal your truth to us. We need you to know truth and to see truth and to live by truth. And so that's our prayer this morning, uh, that you would accomplish that in us and through us as we come together around your word, for we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So as I said last week, we are spending this Advent season just in the Gospel of Matthew because we want to experience the Christmas story from his perspective. We want to discover the Jesus that Matthew is seeking to present to us. Meeting Jesus was the the watershed event in Matthew's life. When Jesus came to his tax collector booth and said, follow me, Matthew's life was never the same again. Matthew looked at his life that had come before, and all of that was was reinterpreted in the light of Jesus. And so what truth is Matthew writing here, and how is he writing it? So that the person of Jesus Christ becomes a, a watershed moment in the lives of everyone who reads his gospel. Last week, we looked just at verse 1. It was full of beautiful truth, and I'll have to point you to the podcast from last week if you, if you want to hear that. This morning, we're going to look at verses 2 through 16. Because in these verses, this is where Matthew is doing the rebooting of expectations. And so we can think about how it is that Matthew could have written this first chapter in his gospel. He could have written verse 1 like this. The story of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and then skipped right to verse 17. There were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. And then right into verse 18, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. And the story would have flowed just as beautifully And all that wonderful truth that inspired us last week would still be here to discover. The bonus is that we wouldn't have to read all of these names. Raise your hand if you have ever just skimmed or skipped over these verses entirely. Raise your hand. Raise your hand. It's true. It's what we do. We don't normally go to these verses for our devotional reading. But listen, Matthew was not inspired to leave these verses out. He was compelled by the Holy Spirit to write the genealogy that appears before us. Why? What value is it? How does this genealogy add to the story? How would Matthew's hopes for what his gospel is going to accomplish in people's lives, how would they fall short if these verses weren't here? I think it has to do with rebooting. Because we remember that Matthew primarily wrote for a Jewish audience. And that's why Matthew quotes so heavily from the Old Testament. We saw it last week, this formula that he uses 11 times, where he says, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, whichever prophet it was. And so for Jewish readers, a genealogy was very important. Having the right pedigree, the right genealogy was important for anyone who sought to have a hearing with someone who is Jewish or to have an impact on their lives. We are not unlike that ourselves. You know, it used to be said in America that in New York City, what is most important is what you have. In Boston, what's most important is what you know. And in Philadelphia, what is most important is who you know. And so we have our own types of genealogies, financial ones, educational ones, family tree ones, and and those all combined to make us want to listen to the person 
a little bit more if they have the right genealogy. Look, I often, regularly, tell people that I graduated from Princeton. (laughs) Why are you laughing? It's absolutely true. I graduated from Princeton. It's not my fault if they assume it's the Ivy League Princeton and not Princeton High School from where I graduated. (laughs) I regularly tell people that my family fought at Concord. Absolutely true. Generations of my family attended Concord University. And knowing my family, I'm sure that they fought or squabbled there. (laughs) It's not my fault if people assume that I'm referring to the first battle of the American Revolutionary War, right? But it's true, none of us would complain if we had a little prestige in our family line. So it's a little disingenuous of us to call foul on the the Jewish people for placing emphasis on their genealogy or massaging it just a little bit for their own advantage. The problem is in Matthew's day, the Jews took it a little far. They become obsessed with it. And so the Apostle Paul writes to the young minister Timothy, and he says, command certain people not to teach false doctrines, or to devote themselves, devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. So what Matthew's doing here is preparing his Jewish readers for the reboot that is coming by drawing them in with something that is important to them. Ah, Estelle, honey, look, a genealogy. Let's keep reading. See, he's meeting people where they are so that he can take them where they need to be. And so if a genealogy is what's interesting to the people, Matthew will write that genealogy, but only so they will keep reading so that they will find out more and more about this man called Jesus the Christ. And so that's the positive side of this genealogy. Meeting people where they are, taking them where they need to be. But Matthew doesn't waste this opportunity. He isn't just pandering to them, indulging the reader to win their favor or... Sell more copies. Hey, Hoyman, did you see the latest book in the bookstore? It begins with a genealogy. No, that's not what Matthew is doing. Just in the moment that Matthew is giving them something they want and something they expect, then he shocks them with the unexpected. And that's where the reboot really begins. So in these verses, what is unexpected but not completely uncommon is that Matthew lists Four women in this genealogy. The real shock is that all four of these women are Gentiles. Not one of them is from the nation of Israel. And on top of that, all four of these women are of questionable morals. Let's look at the first one. Look in verse 3. It says there that Judah is the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Here's Tamar's story. Follow along. Tamar was the daughter-in-law of Judah. She was married to his oldest son, Ur. Ur was a wicked man, so he died. Then Judah, the father, married his second son, Onan, to Tamar. And he said his son, you go produce an heir for your dead brother. Well, Onan, he didn't want to produce an heir for his brother. And so he refused to give Tamar a son. He too died. Judah had a third son. But he had no intention of marrying his third son to this woman 
through whom he had lost two sons already. And so Judah sent Tamar back to her own people. They were the Canaanites. Canaanites. And he said, you go back there, and when my son grows up, I'll come and get you. All right? Judah never went and got Tamar, even though the son had grown up. And so Tamar took matters into her own hands. You know this story? So she disguises herself. She dresses up like a prostitute, and she, she places herself beside the road that she knows Judah is going to be passing by. And along comes Judah. And Judah's wife is dead. He's a widower, and so he hires Tamar. And Tamar becomes pregnant. And so when Judah discovers that the prostitute was not a prostitute at all, but it was Tamar, his daughter-in-law, and that she was pregnant, here was his response. She is more righteous than I am because I didn't arrange for her to marry my son. Because Judah knew that was the law. And had it not been for Tamar and what she did in this moment, the line of Judah would have come to an end. And the line of Judah is David's line. And David's line It is the line of Jesus himself. So in the midst of human dysfunction and human manipulation, God's grace was upon Tamar and upon his people. Look in verse 5. The second woman mentioned there. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Now, I guess Rahab's morals weren't questionable. They were blatantly immoral because Rahab is mentioned eight times in Scripture. And six of those times she is called Rahab the prostitute. Please imagine history remembering you in that way. But you know her story. When the Israelite spies went in to to spy out the land of Jericho before the battle, Rahab hid them. And then when those came looking for the spies to kill them, Rahab lied to protect their lives. And here's what God's grace did in the life of that prostitute. She made this bold proclamation before God's people. The Lord, your God, is God in heaven above and on the earth below. That's God's grace in Rahab's life. In the midst of dysfunction and human manipulation, here is God's grace for Rahab and for his people. Keep looking in verse 5. The third woman mentioned there. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Ruth was a widow. She was also a Moabite. And we know from our study of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, my goal is to work it into every sermon until we get back to Deuteronomy. But we know from chapter 23 in Deuteronomy that God said that Moabites could not participate in the worship of Israel until the 10th generation. Because the Moabites were were evil people and they they worshipped Chemosh and and they appeased him through human sacrifice. And so these were Ruth's people. So what hope does Ruth possibly have? Well, Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi, they come up with this plan to get the attention of a man named Boaz, who was a man of Israel. Well, the plan worked. And Ruth got Boaz's attention. And so Boaz bought Ruth, and then he married her, and he cared for her, and he brought her into the family of God, and the story is beautiful. So here in the midst of dysfunction and human manipulation, God's grace was upon Ruth and upon his people. Now look in verse 6. The fourth woman is listed there. David was the father of Solomon, whose wife had been Uriah's wife. 
Now, every Jew reading this gospel would know that Uriah's wife was Bathsheba. So why doesn't Matthew just call her by name? It isn't because Bathsheba was too wicked to even mention her name in writing. No, Matthew knows too much of the grace of the Lord to have that attitude. In fact, it's to highlight the grace of the Lord that Matthew doesn't mention her name. He calls her Uriah's wife to remind people that Bathsheba was a married woman when David saw her and wanted her and called for her. And David, in Scripture, is called a man after God's own heart. Not like the prostitutes or Moabites. David is the best of the best. But when he called for Bathsheba, Bathsheba went to this man after God's own heart. And when she became pregnant, David had her husband, Uriah, killed to cover up their sin. And yet through adultery and murder, Jesus came. So in the midst of dysfunction and human manipulation, God's grace was upon Bathsheba and upon his people. We could keep looking at the list of people contained in these verses. Matthew is not a misogynist by any means. The list here contains names of people who did wicked, sinful things. Men who did that. It's just not as shocking when men do something evil, I think, as as when women do it. And so why is Matthew bringing all this up? Why didn't Matthew just leave out the names of these women? He could have. No one would have thought twice about it. Oh, no women in genealogy, no big deal. He left out other names so that he could neatly have these three sets of 14 generations. So what's Matthew doing? From the very beginning of a story about Jesus, he wants people to understand something about him, that Jesus is the king of grace. We could look at the lives of the vilest sinner in this list, the most faithless person in this list. We could look at the most faithful person in this list and we would still arrive at the same conclusion, that sinful people need the grace of God. That's true, isn't it? And the good news is that sinful people receive the grace of God. And that's the reboot that Matthew's readers needed in their lives. They needed to see that Jesus is the king of grace with pity and pardon for prostitutes like Rahab and adulteresses like Bathsheba. They need to see him as the king of grace with a heart that is open and arms that are open to welcome those, all those who are far off, just like Ruth was. They need to see him as the king of grace for those who strive to love the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, like David yet who fail miserably. Jesus is to them the king of grace as well. And not only does does God pour out his grace on these people, but then he, he uses them. He uses them for his purpose and for his glory. And so that's the reboot that Matthew is trying to accomplish in these verses. He has to clear out all of these old, wrong expectations of who the Messiah is. He's got to clear out all the wrong belief of of the kind of people that Jesus, the Messiah, will grace. I want to reread to you a quote from a sermon several 
weeks ago because it, it highlights how much these people needed to be rebooted. And, and you'll probably remember it. It's from the book entitled United by Faith. It talks about the religious people of that day and, and, and their congregation, who was allowed in their presence. And it said the, the, those who were excluded from membership was a long list. The list of people who could not meet the definition. Such lists included women, Samaritans, and Gentiles. Well, all of them have already appeared in this genealogy. Individuals with criminal records, anyone who was sick or disabled, tax collectors. Those of certain occupations were not counted worthy. Camel drivers, sailors, herdsmen, weavers, traders, barbers, butchers, physicians, business people. Only People who were the only people who were qualified were healthy males of pure Hebrew ancestry who held respectable jobs and followed all the laws of the religion. That was life when Matthew was writing his gospel. And so clearly, these people who call themselves the people of God needed a reboot. And so, the average person, the average Jew in Matthew's day, the Messiah was someone who was going to come and restore the national glory to the nation of Israel. The Messiah was going to come and he was going to make God's people preeminent in the world as they had been under the time and the reign of David. These people were not interested in or looking for a Messiah who would suffer and die. wasn't on their radar. They weren't interested in a Messiah who could forgive them for sins. That wasn't an issue for them in their lives. They weren't interested in a Messiah who would restore a broken relationship with God because they didn't believe that their relationship with God was broken in the first place. And I think that's why Matthew, when he records this story in in Matthew 16, the one where he says to the disciples, who do you say I am? And Peter responds for the whole group and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus replies, blessed are you, Peter, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but my Father in heaven. And then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Jesus didn't say, don't tell, because he didn't want to offer himself as the Messiah. That's what he came to do, to offer himself to all people as the Messiah. Jesus just knew that People's expectations for Messiah were so off. And so he didn't want that name, that title to mislead people into believing that he was going to be what he would not be for them. He's not going to meet their political expectations or their expectations for prestige or power or profit. He's so different than they expect him to be. And so Matthew is rebooting those expectations from the beginning. Jesus is from a people like the ones listed here. And Jesus is for people like the ones listed here. As I was reading through this list, the thought occurred to me, what would Matthew do with this idea of the immaculate conception? You know what that is? In in 1854, Pope Pius IX pronounced and defined that Mary, in the first instance of her conception, by a singular privilege and grace granted by God, was preserved exempt from all stain 
of original sin. Original sin was not removed from her soul as it's removed from others by baptism. It was excluded. It never was in her soul. Every stain and fault, all depraved emotions, passions, and abilities, essentially pertaining to original sin, were excluded. That's immaculate conception. And it's admitted that this concept can't be found anywhere in Scripture. It's more of a rational argument because we have difficulty accepting that this is an acceptable family tree. And while I appreciate the desire to protect the holiness of the Lord Jesus, we just can't conceive that He, being God, could come from Tamar's and Rahab's and Ruth's and Bathsheba's. But I believe that that's the very point that Matthew is making here. He did. Jesus chose to take on flesh and live among sinful people. Jesus chose to experience what we experience as humans. Jesus chose to be tempted in every way as we are tempted. Jesus chose to experience the frailties that we experience as humans so that we, sinful humans, know that we have one that we can approach who will understand us in our humanity. Jesus' family tree tells us that we don't have to clean up our family tree before we can come to him. This genealogy reminds us that we don't have to come up with our own immaculate conception story to prove to the Lord that we are good enough to be in his family because that's where the glitches in our lives come. That's where our lives go off track and become lives of frustration. When we are determined to present a pedigree to God. To prove ourselves good enough. That will only lead to frustration. We know once again that this is true. Whatever God ordains, Satan opposes. And God has ordained the gospel. He wasn't coerced into it. It was his plan to recreate And to restore all that was destroyed by sin through his son who would take on human flesh. Same kind of flesh as David and Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba. But see, Satan opposes the gospel. And Satan says, unacceptable. Satan says, clean up if God will accept you. So where do you need to reboot this morning. I think all of us can look for areas of frustration in our lives. And if we trace back those frustrations to their source, I bet that we will discover that we are not seeing Jesus as he is, as Matthew presents him here. We're not understanding his grace. I bet that we are not extending the grace that Matthew speaks about in these verses to ourselves. Instead, we beat ourselves up. Or I bet that we are not extending that grace about which we read in these verses to someone else in our lives. 
And so the result is frustration. And so you and I need to reboot. We need to clear out the wrong view of Jesus and see him as the kind of Messiah he is. The Lord of grace. The one who does not reject the sinful. The one who does not reject those that others reject. The one who does not reject those like David who are after his own heart but still mess up and still get it wrong. Reboot. Reboot. Leave the frustration behind. Live in the peace of grace and the acceptance of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you for this genealogy, and we thank you for the lives of people represented by it, and we thank you for the demonstration that it is as we think about these people's lives of of your grace. They were real people in real time who walked on this same earth, Lord, that we walk on. Here they walked and lived and sinned, and Lord, here is where they experienced your grace. The grace that is the same and available to us today through the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that what you call us to, as we've talked about and prayed and read this morning, is to be people of faith. The baptisms we celebrated, the professions of faith. Lord, may we be those people when faith believe the gospel is true. You love us. You accept us not because of who we are, not our genealogy, not our pedigree, not how good we are or how, how well we obey. You accept, you accept us, Lord, simply by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, when we forget that truth, help us to reboot and to focus our eyes on you And see you as who you are, the King of glory and of grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.